بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته How's everybody today? Inshallah, I hope you're all well after Eid Inshallah, uh, welcome back We had a break for a week as you know And uh, Inshallah, we're back Inshallah, I hope with some interesting content today and uh, we'll be looking at the story of Sayyida Zuleikha, who is the wife of the, the vizier in uh, ancient Egypt, and her interaction with Sayyidina Yusuf, السلام, the Prophet Yusuf, or Joseph, as he's known in English. So, inshallah, um, we will start. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, I'll just mention the kind of sub-topic uh, here, which is um, female sexuality, so renewing our understanding. So what we're aiming to get at here is to pick apart some of the ways in which this whole construct of female sexuality has been uh, put together from non-Islamic worldviews and non-Islamic traditions and how that has impacted our understanding of this story and of the woman in this story and the way that she behaved uh, and hopefully we'll be uh, trying to uh, put aside the parts that are not relevant to us and renew our understanding of uh, what that concept of uh, female sexuality is in the Islamic tradition if there even is such a thing as female sexuality like where did that even come from why do we even start talking about things like that so inshallah we'll be looking at that and uh, as I said we're back in um, ancient Egypt in the royal courts where wealth and power and desire are thought to run amok or do they? So again we have to question and look at some of our concepts about how we consider these ancient mystical uh, somewhat uh, mythical and exotic representations of civilizations long past and why do we look at them the way that we do and what are the types of things that we see in them uh, and uh, how our own uh, interpretations might actually color or impede the way that we are truly meant to understand the people and societies of that time so the way in which we're doing that inshallah is through this Ahsan al-Qasas which is the best story uh, which is the story of Sayyidina Yusuf uh, who was the son of Nabi Yaqub, Jacob, the prophet Jacob, who was the son of Ishaq, Isaac, who was the son of Nabi Ibrahim, Abraham, who we looked at his story uh, a bit uh, last time when we looked at the story of, of Sayyida Hajar. So inshallah that's our content for today. Our class etiquette's the same of course, women only please no recording or screenshots and questions and comments at the end and our intentions for learning inshallah from Imam Haddad so by repeating this all the time inshallah we start to understand more the approach that we're meant to be taking to our learning what the fruits of that are and also connecting us to the great Imam Haddad and his uh, scholarly legacy and also to his state inshallah so this is how he approached learning being from the great rank that he was and this is how we should also strive to approach our learning with these particular intentions. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. 
نويت التعلم والتعليم والتذكر والتذكير والنفع والانتفاع والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على التمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى In the name of Allah most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach to remember and remind to benefit myself and benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Ameen. Okay, so today we'll be looking at three different areas um, in relation to this story in the Quran. And so we'll be looking at the verses specifically in two parts, um, those that come from around uh, 21, verse 21, and then the second part, so the pre-Nabi Yusuf being imprisoned and after his imprisonment. So that's where the story of Sayyidah Zulaikha comes. So we'll be looking at those verses, inshallah, and then considering some interpretations and narratives around those verses. And there'll be three different ways that we're looking at that. And then having a discussion, inshallah, on this whole concept of female sexuality and inshallah renewing our understanding so that we are more in line with the way that a woman on the straight path would consider that aspect of herself and certainly the manifestation and behavior um, with regards to that in her life's journey back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah. So these are our verses for our first part in Surah Yusuf, which is the 12th chapter of the Quran. And we're looking at the verses 21 to 35 and then 50 to 57. So we'll just go through the general meanings and then afterwards in the second part, we'll do a little bit of an analysis of those, uh, of some interpretations and narratives, inshallah. So many of you will, will already be familiar with this story. So just um, very, very briefly, uh, Sayyidina Yaqub, uh, Jacob, he had 12 sons with two different wives, 10 from one wife and two from another wife. And the two who came from the one mother was Sayyidina Yusuf and his brother Sayyidina Benjamin. Benjamin. So they were blood brothers and they had these 10 half-brothers. And uh, the half-brothers were jealous because they felt that their father, who was a prophet, uh, favoured them or loved them more. And so they cooked up a plan where they were going to dispose of their little brother Yusuf. And prior to that, Yusuf had had a dream, Nabi Yusuf had had a dream, and he said to his father that he saw in his dream, Ahada Ashara Kokaban, so he saw 11 stars, and the Shams, the sun, and the Qamar, Ra'ituhum li Sajirin, so he saw them prostrating to him. And he'd asked his father about the meaning of that dream, and his father said to him, Do not tell your brothers because they will plot and scheme against you. Okay, so he warned him. So Sayyidina Yaqub, he already knew that the other sons were jealous. And so he could see that Sayyidina Yusuf, uh, that he was a very special child, that he had the signs of uh, prophethood. 
and so he he warned him he said don't say anything so of course he didn't say anything but at the same time the brothers uh, got this plan they were going to get rid of him and at first one of them suggested killing him and then one of the others the older one said no don't do that let's just take him out one day and we'll throw him down a well and then one, a, a caravan or a group of uh, journeying uh, travelers will come by they'll come to the well they'll pick him up and they'll take him and they'll sell him as a slave so this was their plan and so they said to their father oh we just want to take him out and have fun and have a bit of a picnic and relax out in the in the desert area like away from where they lived and we'll bring him back and the father said oh I don't want you to do that I'm worried he'll be eaten by a wolf and they said no 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 we'll look after him don't worry so they took him they threw him down the well and then they came back to the father with his shirt stained with sheep's blood so lying that uh, that he had actually been taken by the wolf just as his father had feared although his father knew that it wasn't true um, and the physical evidence of that was that the shirt had not actually been torn or ripped so any interaction with a wild animal will <laughs> obviously have some type of uh, physical imprint which would be the ripping of the clothes but it was intact with the blood so that was a clear sign so we start our story here where he was picked up by a caravan and they were described the people of that caravan as people who were of the the Zahidin those who weren't interested in worldly things and they were very happy to have found him and they took him to Egypt and they sold him in the slave market for a cheap price just a few coins and he was bought by the wazir, by the vizier, um, one of the senior people in the uh, pharaonic court. So we'll just go through the English and where um, it's important we'll look at the Arabic there. So in uh, verse 21, so the uh, Egyptian who was the wazir, whose name was Al-Aziz, uh, that's how he's known in the Quran, um, he said to his wife when he brought this young boy home, take good care of him and so he was perhaps in his late teens there's some dispute amongst the scholars as to exactly what age he was but perhaps sort of 15 16 17 or even a little bit younger some say about 12 um, so he, he said to his wife who's Zuleika he said take good care of him he might be useful to us or we might adopt him as a son Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we thus established um, Yusuf in the land to teach him the interpretation of events okay so to teach him about life and this is the most important part that Allah has control over his affairs but most people do not know Wallahu ghalibun ala amrihi walakinna akthar nasi la ya'lamun what I want to point out here that this entire story from beginning to end uh, of Sayyidina Yusuf السلام, is not about this particular event that we are going to look at and that has become the object of scrutiny uh, particularly by modern Western educated feminist writers. Okay so if you were to go and approach this story only from a feminist point of view you would think that that was the bulk of the whole story and it's not it's a part of the events that unfolded in the life of Nabi Yusuf it was certainly a very significant and important event but as one feminist writer noted 
that it only takes up 14% of the contents of the surah. Now why that person mentioned that is because she was critiquing one of the uh, classical scholars having spent 23% of his uh, tafsir, of his commentary on this particular chapter, uh, trying to point out that he had uh, a rather biased um, interest in uh, writing about this at length when it only takes 14% and he's now spent 23% of his commentary on these events. So that's where I got that particular number from. Um, and it, it is important because this particular event was the catalyst for Sayyidina Yusuf being cast into prison and uh, thereafter of course he came out and because of his interpretation of the dream then he became um, like the grand vizier of Egypt and so his life story unfolded and this was one of the events and this particular um, uh, part here that Allah has control over his affairs but most people do not know that indicates to us that this is bigger than just each individual event that happened in the life of this prophet so when he reached his maturity we gave him wisdom and knowledge hukman um, we thus reward the righteous. So he was already righteous, he was already pious, and he was given more and more of great qualities and blessings uh, by having been bestowed with a tremendous wisdom and knowledge. So he was being uh, prepared for his role that was to come. Then in 23, it says, So the one in whose house that he was living, who was the wife of the wazir, this is Sayyida Zuleikha, she tried to seduce him. So she shut the doors, she shut the doors and she said, Okay, now there's a lot of uh, commentary that goes on about this particular event. First of all, they talk about this haytalak. And she said haytalak, which means I am yours, or it means uh, come to me, or it means I have prepared myself for you. And there is some discussion there amongst the, uh, the linguistic scholars and what they have said about the meaning of these words. There are many different pronunciations of it. And some even claim that it's not actually from the Arabic language and others say that it is. So there's some discussion on that. Okay, so why is that important to note that there is discussion on the linguistic construction and meaning of this? Because the way that this is understood within our Islamic scholarly and spiritual tradition has got nothing to do with considering the passion of this woman and, and what she was actually doing, which was trying to seduce this young man. And the focus traditionally is not on those aspects of what is called her sexual expression or her sexuality. Okay, so this is a really important point because how she expressed herself sexually here by trying to seduce him is really not of the greatest amount of concern at this point to the scholars. The way they interpret and comment these comment on these verses does not have that focus. Okay, then they also discuss um, 
rawadatu, that when she seduced him, the actual meaning of that word implies kind of a, um, like a coming and going, a back and forth. So there was a, an exchange between them where she had uh, come forward with some action which was clearly uh, seductive in nature and he had sort of turned away or not been interested or there was some, uh, it, it was communicated over some time which might have been a few seconds or half a minute or something like that but the, this it, it implies that there was a communication between them. So she was trying to get her message across and he was not quite sure how to interpret that. It says that she shut the doors and it said that there were seven doors because of course she was the most beautiful woman. She was the wife of the vizier. She had money and wealth and status and everything. And of course she lived in a grand palace uh, being of the uh, extremely wealthy and powerful classes of ancient Egypt. So she was extremely attractive and alluring and she had a very deep uh, passion and love for Sayyidina Yusuf and remember of course that he was given half the beauty of the world. So he was an extremely, extremely beautiful human being uh, in his physical form, of course in his inner form as well as who he was in his heart, but he actually had uh, an overly beautiful physical form. So he was extremely attractive and his uh, response to when she'd actually said those words was Kala Allah. He said, Allah forbid, or I seek refuge in Allah. And he refers immediately to her husband and he says, Innahu Rabbi So he is my Lord. Now Lord here doesn't mean Allah, it means my master because remember he was a slave. He had been purchased as a slave. So he was referring to his slave master and so he said, you know, how, meaning how can you make this proposal to me or this proposition when my master is the one who has given me a good home? And he said, sinners never succeed. Then the next verse says that she desired him. So the hem there is the uh, desire that she had for him. And then it says, and he desired her. Okay, so he was stirred with desire for her. And this is mentioned uh, very, very clearly here. It can't really be interpreted in any other way other than his uh, human and male and masculine desire for this beautiful woman had been stirred. However, what prevented him from following through and accepting her uh, proposition it says here that had he not seen the proof of his Lord, Lola and Ra'a Burhana Rabbihi. So the Rob here is Allah, is his Lord, not his slave master. And so uh, Al Qushayri, Al Qushayri says uh, that who was one of the great um, one of the great scholars from the past and who wrote a great book on the uh, the principles of Tasawwuf of Sufism, Imam Al-Kushayri, he said that when she closed the door of the room, then Allah opened the door of prophetic protection for him. So that what was closed, which was the doors, didn't have, or what would have happened because of the result of closing those doors, didn't have the effect of harming him after what he was honored with 
by what was open for him, which was this door of prophetic protection. Um, and we know that prophets are protected from uh, big acts of sin. This is something that they are granted and this is a part of their status and this is one of our fundamental tenets of belief as Muslims that prophets are protected but no one else is. No one else is protected from sin. So this door of prophetic protection was open to him and there are a couple of other things that some of the scholars say because it's not really stated what the proof of his Lord was. So some of them say that uh, Zuleika suddenly felt shy and they they had sort of been engaging in some intimacy but sort of just mildly this is what the scholars say uh, and that she saw a statue and so she felt shy and covered herself and Sayyidina Yusuf said to her why are you doing that and she said that she felt shy that the statue would see her like that in this rather compromised situation and Sayyidina Yusuf said, well, I am more shy that Allah would see me in this particular situation. So that this was a realization that had come over him when he remembered that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was looking at him because Allah sees everything. Another scholar says that Sayyidina Yusuf looked up and he saw written on the ceiling the verse, وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا الزِّنَا إِنَّهُ كَانَ فَاحِشَةً وَسَاءَ سَبِيلًا So do not approach fornication or adultery indeed it is a most corrupt act and spoils or ruins your path or your way so that's another view that he looked up and saw that and that that was the proof and other scholars say that he saw a vision of his father's face Sayyidina Yaqub uh, who said to him are you going to forfeit your designation of prophethood and your portion of paradise by falling into this act of disobedience and sin. And so this is what woke him up. Um, and then it says that he was one of our loyal servants, which there is a divine declaration of his innocence. Okay, so whilst he had been stirred by her and her seductive ways, he was actually innocent because it's not something that he initiated and it's not something that he persisted in once he had sort of come to his senses and realized that you know what's going on here also even Kathir mentions that uh, at this particular point a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad when he says that there are seven who are under the shade of the throne on the day in which there is no shade but the shade of Allah and one of those seven is a man who is called by a woman of prestige and beauty and who says indeed I fear Allah so a man to whom temptation has come and he's able to resist and hold himself back and not fall into that temptation so that is one of the groups of people who will be in a very on a very high status and under the shade of the throne on the day of judgment so then Sayyidina Yusuf, coming to his senses, realizes, no, this is wrong. And so he starts to pull away from her and gather himself and run towards the door. So she ran with him. So So the, the two of them raced towards the door. And as he was running in front of her and she was trying to catch him, she tore his shirt from behind. And then, subhanAllah, the door opens and there's her husband, Al-Aziz. Now she had thought that this was a day he was far away, he wouldn't be there. 
she had planned this whole thing um, and how it was going to happen and of course without any risk of her husband turning up but lo and behold there he was and so immediately she says to him oh what's the penalty for him who desired to dishonor your wife except imprisonment or a painful punishment so immediately what she does is try to cover her tracks by blaming Sayyidina Yusuf okay and that's that's part of what you might call the plotting and the scheming which we're going to get to in a moment so she's very very clever and she realizes that she's really done it now she's been busted basically how's she going to get out of this she'll blame him okay so she makes this statement that here is someone who's tried to take advantage of me and I'm innocent and I didn't do anything and so what are you going to do now that you can see this terrible situation and I'm your wife and what's going to be the penalty then for somebody who's tried to dishonor me so what will it be except imprisonment or a painful punishment and then here Sayyidina Yusuf speaks and he would not have spoken if she didn't accuse him had she not said anything he wouldn't have said anything but now he has to defend himself and he says that she's the one who tried to seduce me and so now he's trying to claim his innocence because she's basically tried to throw him under the bus to not get in trouble and then a witness came forward from the household and said if his shirt is torn from the front then she has told the truth and he is the liar but if his shirt is torn from the back then she has lied and he is the one who is truthful and we mentioned in one of our other classes that uh, some of the the scholars said that this was actually a baby in its cradle who made this statement and is one of the four uh, babies who were known to have spoken uh, in their early infancy and uh, others said no this was an adult man who was present in the in the area at the time or this was a young person so again <clears throat> the details of that aren't always uh, exactly known but there are different uh, opinions as to who spoke and then Al-Aziz who is uh, the husband who's looking at his wife uh, knowing that something's wrong seriously wrong here it says that when he saw that the shirt had been torn from the back he said innahu min kaydikun inna kaydakunna azim and this statement is extremely problematic for feminist scholars and those who wish to try and critique this whole story from a feminist point of view and find some type of patriarchy or rather misogyny um, in this story okay so he says <clears throat> that this is a woman scheming so innahu this whole event min kun. So the kaid is the scheming or the plotting. And kaidi kun, the kunna, is the feminine plural. So the second person feminine plural. So he's talking about you women. And then he reiterates that or corroborates that by saying inna. So indeed, kaida kunna, that your scheming is adim. That it is very great and serious and significant. And as I said, this is something that people seem to find a rather misogynistic statement uh, to point out that 
uh, women's scheme and that women have some type of uh, scheming around their sexual uh, prowess or their sexual expression and that this is uh, apparently um, a very serious statement which proves some type of um, anti-female bias uh, in the Quran and particularly in this surah. Subhanallah. We'll go into that a little bit more in a minute. So then the Aziz says, Yusuf, turn away from this. So leave this, turn away, don't speak about it. Just um, get on with your life and do what you have to do. And he says, You, Zuleikha, his wife, ask forgiveness for your sin. He says, uh, So he says, indeed, you are in the wrong. Or more specifically, he says, you are from the wrongdoers. And he makes a general statement of, it could be anyone who's done wrong in here. So it's not specifically women who've done wrong, but it's anyone who's done wrong in this particular way. And of course, the sin that he's referring to is her uh, potential marital infidelity, uh, which has always been considered sinful, inappropriate, wrong in all cultures. Okay, it's, it's not something that is uh, open to abuse and, and accepted to be abused in, in a culture because of the sacred bond of marriage has always had a very high status in cultures and communities right from the beginning of time. This point here really counteracts this whole sort of feminist assertion that there's misogyny here when he mentions the scheming of women because he says specifically, So you are from this general group of wrongdoers and how do you know that this general group of wrongdoers is you look at the grammar, you look at the structure of the word and khati'in is the uh, masculine plural. Okay, so masculine plural means everybody. He didn't say uh, from khati'at, which would be the feminine plural, okay, and specifically related to women who plot and scheme and commit acts of marital infidelity. No, he says anybody who does wrong. What sort of misogyny have we got here? Like, what are you talking about? Okay, this is a very fair and lenient statement. He could have punished her, he could have sent her to prison, he could have beaten her up, he could have done anything. But he was a man who was kind and lenient and just. And this befitted his rank as a great man of the court. And he was a truly noble and wise person. And he behaved like that and he was prepared to overlook what had happened and get on with things. So this next part here actually confirms this whole scheming. And again, this is where I can't see any misogyny or misogynistic interpretation because just as Al-Aziz had said that the plotting and scheming of women is a very great and immense thing. So now Sayyidah Zuleikha, in order to try and justify the way that she felt and how she acted on her feelings, uh, it said that she heard that there was gossip amongst the women in the city and, and it said here in the Quran what they said and they said, oh, the governor or the wazir, the vizier's wife is trying to seduce her servant. She's deeply in love with him. We see or we think that she's gone astray. She's acting really out of line and she's a bit crazy. So she heard this and so she thought, right, I'm going to show them. And she invited them to a very elaborate banquet. 
and she gave each one of them a knife, like a small sort of paring knife that you would cut fruit with. And so she made sure that they'd eaten well and that they'd had all the luxurious foods that would have been presented on such an occasion by such people. And then it was kind of after the main meal and she presented everyone with fruit and these little knives. And so as they were picking up the fruit and starting to peel uh, peel that with the knife, then she had prepared Sedna Yusuf behind a screen and she made him look as exquisitely beautiful as he possibly could. And already he was exquisitely beautiful, but she really, really prepared him and made him look like something from another world. And as they were cutting these fruits, she said to him, come out and stand or parade in front of the women. And so when they saw him, they were so aghast at this incredible human being, this incredible sight, that they cut their hands. And uh, with the, the shock and being so taken aback by this incredible vision, they didn't even feel that they'd hurt themselves because they were so taken by him. This is not a human. This must be a, an angel, a most noble angel. And so then she is like, this is a great moment now, and she says, here, here he is. Uh, this is the one you blamed me for. So this is the one that you've all been gossiping about and here you can't blame me anymore because look at him yourself. You know, you're infatuated, you're over the moon, you don't know what to do to the extent that you've even cut yourselves and not even known that you've cut yourselves. Like that's how out of your minds you are about the beauty of this man. So you can't blame me, she says, right? Is this a plot or what? This is a huge scheming plot. So she says, I did try to seduce him, but he resisted. But if he does not do what I tell him to do, she means now, then he will be imprisoned and will be one of the despised. And he's extremely shocked when he sees, when he hears this and he says, my Lord, prison is more desirable to me than what they call me to. And here, this is uh, verse 33, this word kaid is mentioned again. And he says, Rabbi sijanu ahabu ilayya mimma yada'unani ilayhi wa illa tasrif anni kaydahunna asub ilayhinna wa akun mina jahinin. Oh my Lord, take their scheming. If you don't take their scheming, their kaid, okay, again this word kaid, the kaid of these women, that I will relent and yield to them. And then I will really be of those who, who are of the ignorant, of the foolish, of those who've wasted their opportunities. So Allah answered his dua and diverted their scheming, again Kaidahunna, away from him. He is the uh, all-seeing and the all-knowing. And then it occurred to them after they'd seen the signs to imprison him for a while. So the thing is that they saw that he was not going to relent and they decided there was kind of a general meeting not just the women but then others had been called in okay the best thing to do is to put him away in prison so he was imprisoned and as you know there he met the two um, other inmates and they had dreams and he interpreted their dreams and the one who he thought would be successful and get out of the prison he said when you go um, remember me to your Lord, so Lord there being the ruler, um, and remind him that, that I'm here, that I'm in prison, 
but when he went out he forgot so shaitan made him forget and so yusuf stayed in prison for another couple of years so it's said that he was there for about 10 years in total and then the king had a dream that the seven lean cows would eat the fat ones and that the the dried corn would take over the fresh corn and so he was very disturbed by this and he wanted someone to interpret his dream and then the inmate who had come out a few years earlier suddenly remembered Sayyidina Yusuf and he said to the king, I know who can do that. And the king said, bring him to me. So when they went to collect him from the prison, Sayyidina Yusuf did not jump up and down for joy after 10 years of absolute hardship and uh, the most cruel, horrible conditions in the dungeon, but rather he wanted to have his innocence proven and so he said, go back to your master, go back to the king and ask him about the intentions of the women who cut their hands. And my Lord is well aware of their schemes. So here we have the Cade again. And so then the women are called, and he, and including Zuleika, and he says, what was the matter with you? Like, what, what did you do when you tried to seduce him? And of course, they wanted to know whether or not he was innocent. And they said, no, Allah forbid. We knew of no evil committed by him. And then Zuleika said, now the truth is out. Okay, she says, um, now she admits to what she was really doing. And she said, it was I who tried to seduce him and he is telling the truth. So what do we make of this story? And, and as I've said a couple of times, there's this word Cade, which gets uh, repeated quite often. And we see that there is a particular way in which uh, modern secular uh, feminist scholars are trying to read something into this story which shows that there is a type of punishment or bias against the uh, sexual autonomy of Sayyidah Zuleika and that she is put, uh, you know, she is treated disparagingly because of that. But I think we can see already without even going into too much detail, that that's not necessarily the case and that that uh, particular reading most certainly does not come from uh, Quranic scholarship and from our uh, scholarly and spiritual tradition, but rather is a projection or an imposition of an alien way of thinking about this subject of female sexuality, which is in itself is born out of an alien tradition and now imposed here or used as a lens to try and interpret these events. We'll have a look now at these interpretations and narratives. And this picture here, I sort of couldn't resist. Um, it's Elizabeth Taylor in the 1963 Cleopatra movie, um, which was one of the ultimate uh, epic films ever produced uh, by 20th Century Fox that cost an untold amount of money, just absolutely so extreme. And of course, in those days, they didn't have CGI, they computer-generated images, which now they would use to do massive crowd scenes and all the splendor and pomp and glory of the Roman and Egyptian empires and everything. Um, back in 1963, they actually had to physically create all these scenes and they brought in thousands and thousands of extras and they all had to have costumes and uh, incredible amount of money spent on this production. And uh, what's interesting about this representation of Cleopatra is that she combines the two elements of the treacherous female temptress and seductress. And she also is portrayed as being the owner and the autonomous uh, 
authority of her own sexuality and sexual expression. So in this picture, I think you can see both. I mean, she has that look in her eye like, I'm going to destroy you like with my incredible female wiles. And I'm also really in control of what I'm doing. So you can see that this is kind of a representation there, which is a part of a consciousness or part of a particular cultural view of women, which it clearly comes out of a, a Western Orientalist influenced middle class cultural way of looking at the world. It has these elements of the exotic, of the unknown, of the mystical, of the untamed female power, which is at once uh, sort of glorified and looked at with awe, but at, at the same time feared and needs to be put back in its place, lest it should get out of control. So neither of these, of course, are probably uh, really very true about Cleopatra VII, who was this particular one, um, and nor would it be how we should be viewing the study of Asada Zuleika, um, this woman in the Quran who put herself in a compromising position with her slave who happened to be a prophet. So again, we need to try and understand that not from these types of representations and views which form a part of Western popular culture, but rather what is a real proper way of understanding that from within the Islamic worldview. What we really get from this whole story, if we look at it from uh, an Islamic worldview perspective, is that it's really a path of tawbah. It's a path of repentance. Uh, and this is a very beautiful and exalted thing. Because the first way that a person reconnects to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and rectifies themselves uh, spiritually is through the door of repentance. And repentance is the first step. So for a person to repent, which means to turn back to Allah, then they need, first of all, to recognize that they have transgressed. And of course, that transgression is first and foremost against themselves. Um, and then that the next part of that transgression against oneself is through transgressing against the, uh, the laws and the sunnah and the sharia and through what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, how he's created us to be and how he's created us to live. So there's been a transgression against uh, those laws which have been put there for the benefit of the human being and society. So if we're really going to look at this story properly, then we can really only see it from the point of view that this is a story of a woman's Toba and the way in which those around her also understood that, and particularly her husband. So the parts of that that we see, first of all, from him is this um, recognition that she has transgressed, but also there is a leniency from him with regards to the state that she's in and her actions. Okay, so, so if somebody does something wrong or sinful or disobedient or harmful to themselves or others, then we have to look at, at that and uh, recognize what it is. And whilst we don't like that action, um, there has to be a leniency towards that person. I mean, if someone's just done the wrong thing, stepped out of line a bit, had a bit of a slip up, you know, we don't condemn them, but rather we go, okay, this is wrong because of X, Y, Z. But now you try and work on that person to try and uh, bring them with leniency uh, and a guidance and mercy so that they will repent um, and correct themselves and rectify themselves. And that's the goal. So 
here we have not only recognition and leniency, but then the Quran actually gives us a description of unchecked human passion and love and desire. So it shows us what that will look like, okay, should a person uh, transgress against themselves in a in, in, in sort of expressing themselves sexually or in following their sexual desire. And then we have through her an admission of her dishonesty, first of all, the dishonesty she had with herself, okay, because at the end she says, now the truth has come clear and it was me who seduced him. And so she admits that she was dishonest with herself all this time, 10 years or more, Sayyidina Yusuf is in prison and it took her that long to actually come forth and say, yes, I was wrong. And subhanAllah, I mean, that, that's long, you know, and he suffered a lot as a result of that. Then there's the rectification of the self and uh, she did make her tawbah to Allah and although it doesn't tell us in the Quran, Imam Ghazali and other scholars have said that after the Aziz passed away that Sayyidah Zulaykha and Sayyidina Yusuf actually got married, okay, and that they had two children. So then there's a rectification of the self and then of course there's the commitment to the straight path. So that's what this story is trying to tell us, I think from what I've read anyway, and that it's not trying to point out some inherent misogyny and uh, bias against women's female expression. So Ibn Kathir, his, his emphasis in his tafsir is on showing the leniency of Al-Aziz. And that's a point that he makes uh, quite clearly. And Al-Baghawi and Al-Qurtabi, who are two, I mean, these are all the great, great commentators of the Quran. Um, they, they discuss this whole thing um, as uh, in the category of a, a general act of uh, marital infidelity and what that would look like from a from a prophet's point of view. So they go into some detail about um, had Nabi uh, Yusuf actually committed this act uh, with her, then would that have made him, or would that have compromised his prophet status? And they say that the reason why he was shown here as having desire for her um, is not to try and expose a weakness in him, but rather to show people, which is the Muslims, the believers, the Ummah, that uh, not to have despair. So that if it is that you do slip up, then don't worry. Others greater than you have slipped up a little bit too, and that don't despair because that door of rectification and of tawbah is always open to you. So they, and this was also before he was invested in the rank of being a prophet. Okay, so that he, that hadn't yet come upon him. And so some of the prophets do, uh, Sayyidina Musa is another one where he struck the Egyptian man and he ended up dying from that blow. So this is something that's discussed as well, but he wasn't yet invested with prophethood at that stage. So it's after they become prophets that they become uh, protected with this uh, prophetic protection. So this is the type of discussion that goes on. And as I was reading through these, um, I kept, uh, I went and I said to my husband, I'm, I'm trying to find the misogyny, like I'm reading these things because I want to, I want to find the bias. I want to see what's wrong with all this. And I can't, <laughs> like it's just not there. And so the, the, the comment that I'd made before about this Kate, about the plots and the schemes of women, is uh, picked on a bit by what Al-Baydawi says. 
And this is a problem when people approach the Quran only from a translation. Now, if people don't approach the Quran having a good working knowledge of Arabic, they're not going to get the subtleties and they're not going to get the full meaning. And so one of the things that Al-Baydawi said uh, with uh, regards to the Cade, to the scheming of the women, is he says in that that this is um, a scheming of this woman and a scheming of other women. Okay, of all other women, like uh, he says, uh, Sa'irin Nisa, or all women, or the rest of women. And so if this is translated into English, it's going to look uh, really bad. And it's going to look like there's some type of inherent sexism here. Uh, when actually uh, there isn't. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that women have this uh, potential to use their womanly and uh, feminine traits in order to attract and beguile men. And if we try and deny that, then it's very disingenuous. I mean, this is true. This is in all women. You know, we have that ability to misuse that type of uh, energy, if you like, or that force within us or that aspect or characteristic of ourselves. So there's uh, one point here where, where it's said about al-Baydawi's comment that uh, this type of, uh, this Kate, this type of scheming, um, that all women have as being immense and therefore it gets interpreted by feminists as being uh, wrong, okay? Um, but immense can mean different things. Immense can mean, if it's used properly, it can be immensely beneficial, okay, which would be in the case within the bounds of marriage. But if it's abused and transgressed, then it can be immensely harmful. And so, of course, in the feminist literature that I've read anyway, there's, not, there's no subtlety there. There's no distinction in these things. And so there, there is a view there to reject this verse. So if this is rejected from a feminist point of view as being inherently misogynistic because the Cade is only referring to Cade Kun, which is the Cade of women in general, then the question after that is, well, what else are you going to reject? Um, so if you reject that, then you're going to have to reject other verses in the Quran which are deemed to be more problematic and which are not when you actually study them properly. But from a feminist point of view, they are considered rather troublesome when it comes to um, a secular feminist interpretation. So I actually saw uh, one feminist scholar recently who said that it's not possible to be a Muslim and a feminist at the same time and that she chooses feminism. And, and she's Muslim, a, Muslim, a heritage Muslim, Muslim from birth, Muslim name, everything. She works at a university in America. Um, she has obviously a paid job. She writes a lot of material and books and lectures and all sorts of things. And this is the view that she's propagating, that you cannot be Muslim and feminist at the same time. So where does that leave you then as a believer? Like, is that okay just to take what you want of the Quran based on your whims and desires and just uh, ignore or get rid of or write off the rest of it that doesn't fit your little moment at the time. And that's not scholarship and it's not religion either. Okay, and so that's something that we need to be very, very conscious and aware of that a lot of the time, the people who are writing these things and trying to interpret the Quran, they don't even have proper Arabic. And this has been, this is not just my own opinion, this has been written about 
um, in other places as well. And he's one of the big critiques of Muslim feminism in particular because a lot of these scholars admit, I've seen interviews, I've seen discussions where they say, I do not know Arabic. I have no working knowledge of Arabic. Yet they come to the Quran through translation and they try and pull it apart and critique it as being misogynistic and patriarchal and inherently anti-women, yet they can't even engage with the text. So the warning there is be very, very careful uh, what you are reading and from whom. So our second interpretive or uh, narrative paradigm or framework that we're going to look at just to mention it really is this Sufi mystical metaphor for divine love. So Al-Jami was a great uh, Persian scholar. He was actually a great grammarian uh, and he wrote at least 50 works and he's best known for this 8,000 line poem on the story of Zuleikha or Yusuf and Zuleikha as it's called. You can find it online. There's an Orientalist translation from the 19th century. It's in archive. Um, archive.org I think it is you can check it there and have a look it's a huge huge piece of work and he uses this love that she had for him and he uses it as a metaphor for divine love and for annihilation of the self um, in the divine love and for the wedding at the end which is to signify the ultimate uh, union with God okay where a person has become this state of fanat which is annihilation and that's talk that goes on in the kind of the Sufi literature and in the Sufi world about some of those spiritual states. So my question there is, if the feminists are correct in their interpretation, then why would a scholar like Al-Jami, who uh, was a a prolific writer, um, why would he find value in this particular story uh, and and inspiration in it to come up with an 8,000-line poem about love and make it a metaphor for divine love. So if there was something inherently wrong in uh, Zuleika's passion and desire, then there's no way that somebody like uh, Al-Jami, who is a great scholar, would have even gone near that material, let alone found inspiration and produced what some people call the greatest poem ever written in the Persian language. So where does that stand then? And what does that tell us about these reductionist uh, critiques that unfortunately we are being exposed to more and more now currently in our time? When we look at the modern feminist critiques, as I've said, they're going for the patriarchal and misogynistic interpretations that they feel they are uh, qualified to revise and correct. Or there seems to be this other strand of thinking that somehow this story of Sedna Zuleika is an expression of female agency, autonomy and authority. So have there been misogynistic writings about the scheming of women? Well, yes, there has been. Okay, this is true. But over 1400 years, which is 14 centuries, of course there are going to be people who write things on the fringes. Okay, this just has to happen. This is just part of, of being human and whatever. You know, people are going to come with their different views. And our time is certainly characterized by extremist views. So why would it have been any different at any other time? But just the fact that there are extremist views or that there is the odd piece of writing by someone somewhere does not take away from the correctness of the mainstream of how 
mainstream scholarship has viewed these ayahs and have viewed women and, and the story of Sayyidah Zuleika within these ayahs. And so what we have in our Islamic scholarly methodology is something called the Senate, okay, which is a, an authenticated chains of transmission. So this is one of the core and most fundamental um, aspects of knowledge production and generation and transmission because we don't take anything as a source of knowledge or as a textual source unless it has come to us through a particular um, through this particular method of the senate of the chain of transmission so all our textual sources have reached us through these chains and that's how we know and can verify what fits with that and what doesn't and so of course there will be things that don't fit with that because people write whatever they want to write and they always have and you will find uh, men who've got issues with women and some of them wrote about that but that doesn't take away from this huge body of work which has been accepted generation after generation century after century of being the correct and proper way to understand these particular issues this particular event in the life of Sayyidina Yusuf and how we are meant to understand that from a proper and grounded Islamic perspective. Another reason why some feminists go searching and find these fringe uh, pieces of work um, is because they are also operating on the fringe. So in order for, um, for secular feminism to get its voice, it has to pop up from uh, from the outside, from the margin, which is a word you probably are familiar with, from the margins to come forth and speak up, to raise their voice, to express themselves. So it, it can be helped in, you know, helped in the sense that it advances their agenda if they also find writing on the fringes which supports their own uh, marginalised position and that stands in opposition to the mainstream. So when we talk about Sayyidah Zuleika's female agency, autonomy and authority. So this is, a, this is a way of looking at it, for example. So if we're going to frame her uh, desire and her acting on desire sort of with the goal to performing an act of marital infidelity with an innocent young man, uh, which is kind of what it is, or rather that is what it is, um, then what we're looking at is a clear persistence on her part to try and achieve that and this persistence of hers um, which uh, as soon as she saw her husband she blamed him she had this other uh, episode this banquet with the women um, to try and prove that you know she wasn't really in the wrong for feeling the way that she did um, he was cast into prison for 10 years so uh, what are we saying by talking about and praising her agency autonomy and authority is that it's really okay for her to act persistently wrong an innocent young man have him thrown into prison for 10 years over that which she had done had nothing to do with him um, is that okay like is that a praiseworthy thing and if we look at that in our own context if we have women who act in, in a similar way under this guise of agency, autonomy and authority and in doing so end up hurting people or uh, maligning people or accusing people or of getting themselves in a situation that they now need to lie in order to get out of, is, is that good? Like, is that what we should be doing? Is that how we should be acting ourselves and teaching our daughters and those around us that this is the proper way to be in the world because you're a woman and you have some type of um, you know, sexual 
uh, energy or expression within you and that it's okay to just destroy people as you go along through that. So what does that say about our society in the time that we live in today? So if we're going to interpret this particular Quranic story from that angle, then what does it say about us? Because it says more about the, the time that we live in than it does about anything that really happened uh, within that story. So what? So how, how can we teach our daughters, for example, oh, it doesn't matter, just live for the moment, ignore the consequences, blame it on someone else. And, uh, you know, how is that the teaching or the manifestation of being responsible and having ethical behavior? And on top of that, if somebody doesn't like that, so say somebody acts in that manner and then it gets criticized by a man, is that misogyny? Like, is he being misogynistic for calling a woman out for behaving like that? Because the Aziz said, he said, this is from the scheming of women. Indeed, the scheming of women is great. So does that make him a misogynist because he's recognized that there's wrongdoing in this particular act? So this is a, you know, to, to say that that's misogynistic, I mean, really, it's nonsense. And look at so many Me Too scenarios. I mean, this, you know, the Me, Me Too movement really shows us exactly the reality of these things there are many many horrible situations that could have been avoided uh, or averted if women were not deluded into thinking these false notions about their sexual agency and autonomy and authority and acted on that and went ahead and then put themselves in compromising positions with compromising people who went ahead and actually took advantage of that and really transgressed so another point related to that is that Sedu Zuleika was never condemned for her passion. Okay, she was never condemned for having the strong feelings and love that she had for Nabi Yusuf salam, nor was he condemned for having his moment of a desire for her. But she was only ever condemned for the plotting that she carried out. And then the condemnation was very lenient, as we saw from her husband. All he said to her was uh, seek repentance for this you know, and, and correct yourself. That's all he said. Um, so, I mean, basically his rights were being potentially abused there big time. I mean, she was going to cheat on him, but still that was his response. So she was condemned in the most lenient of ways. Never um, was she condemned for the passion that she actually felt, but it was more that she was condemned and, and rebuked for how she acted upon that. So if we look at these modern feminist critiques and these readings of these particular surahs, and we find that they do not make sense at all um, in terms of the tafsir literature um, that we've looked at, and nor do they fit with the universal lessons contained in the story. That if you approach the story with a wise and informed reading based upon the Islamic worldview, you would have revealed to you very quickly what some of these universal um, stories and lessons are. And so one of those, of course, is uh, chastity, which don't really like that word very much because it doesn't really sum up the Arabic concept of it that well. But for want of a better word, we'll just use that. So some type of uh, self-imposed sexual restraint out of uh, shyness and modesty and out of not wanting to transgress that or abuse that. We find that that is in there and patience. And this is really... An important point um, for men and women who want to stay firm on the straight path. 
because we see that this is the value and the strength of the human being who's able to uh, raise themselves above the level of their lower and perhaps animalistic instincts. And so what happened here is that Nabi Yusuf salam, he chose the harshness of prison over the short-term pleasure of disobedience that he might have had with Zuleika or with the other women, even though he was innocent. So it, it shows that he, he, he sought patience for himself and he sought a better and higher way, even though on the outside that looked like what was a lowering. This is the number of times the word Cade appears um, in this particular surah. So the, the verses where it talks about plotting and scheming and really, I think the biggest Cade of all and the worst one by far is the 10 brothers uh, colluding and plotting and scheming about getting rid of their younger brother, Yusuf. And of course, when he becomes the Grand Vizier and they come to him seeking provision because his interpretation of the king's dream was correct, uh, then uh, the rest of the story unfolds and you can see how their plotting did not work, but actually... Um, had the opposite effect. So I can't think of anything worse than 10 brothers lying, colluding, um, throwing their brother down a well, trying to get rid of him, um, lying to their father about it. It's far worse than a woman who has a natural inclination to be um, desirous for a man um, actually feeling the way that she did, thinking, okay, you know, in, in her wrongful state of mind about that feeling, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and do something, um, you know, which nobody will know about. So, uh, you know, it's not natural for brothers to act like that towards another brother. And that's far worse and far more serious than a woman who has a slip up, okay, based on a natural feeling that she has. So if we're talking about Cade and scheming on the scale of things, I think the one with the brothers is uh, much more unnatural and, and much more disastrous in consequence than uh, the one that Seda Zuleika had. Okay, so our last part now, if we talk about this concept of female sexuality and renewing our understanding in light of what we've already looked at, there are two main points that I want to make. But first of all, just this whole concept of female sexuality, I mean, what is it anyway? And who came with that term and who's uh, put this whole concept of sexuality into our, our social and our cultural and our political understanding of the world in this modern or postmodern contemporary culture that we're in. So where did this whole concept come from? Because again, if you look at the, uh, the classical and proper Islamic way of looking at it, it's not termed like that. Okay, It's not this sort of power that is a fundamental part of a female identity. Uh, it's not something that the, that Seda Zuleika was all about. Like that wasn't her complete person. She didn't base who she was as a human being upon that. This was a very, very strong desire or passion or love that she had that she acted on um, in an inappropriate way. It certainly wasn't something that was all about who she was as a person or a human being. The work that is most prominent here would be the work of Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, sociologist and philosopher he died in the 1980s. He wrote a book called The History of Sexuality, uh, which is all about the politics of this discourse. Discourse is actually one of the words that he coined um, of sexual expression. Uh, so it, it's a new thing and he traces this history and the problem, well there are many problems with some of these things that Foucault has put forward, but one of the biggest problems with it is that nobody questions it. 
like if you go and look at sociology or anthropology or education like the social sciences departments in universities now Foucault is like this um, core text it's like everybody has some link to Foucault like in every academic not every academic paper but a lot of them uh, there is reference to Foucault and to his work on power and knowledge and um, crime and punishment and these were some of the books he wrote and also his uh, concepts of the development of this discourse or narrative of sexuality he has he was known uh, for having a bit of a, a taste for young boys um, going and this is all noted okay it's all noted you can go and check it up online um, his activities in Algeria and his uh, pushing for the lowering of the age of consent so that there could be um, consensual sexual acts between adults and children so um, you can read that for yourself it's all there so this is where all this is coming from and as I said the problem is it's never questioned okay it's just taken as the stock standard way that in this postmodernist era that we're living in that that is how you understand these things okay and as Muslims as Muslim women as Muslim women um, trying to get ourselves together to get on the straight path and stay there then we have to be very, very weary of where these ideas come from, who they come from, and how they are impacting us in our understanding. So in terms of renewing our understanding, just two points here that we need to follow the spiritual methodology in our approach to understanding feminism today that is uh, followed by somebody who wants to rid their heart of unpraiseworthy qualities like anger and jealousy and uh, vaingloriousness or a job where a person is so pleased with themselves. The illnesses of the heart that Imam Ghazali talks about um, in many of his books, particularly in the Ihyar al-Madin. So there's a particular methodology that he lays out that has been followed for many, many centuries, that this is the way that a person purifies himself spiritually. Uh, it's a three-part stage of tahalli, which is ridding oneself of the thing that is blameworthy or not good and then tahalli which is adorning oneself um, with that which is good and praiseworthy like you know generosity and all the good and positive character traits and then tajalli which is the real establishment and manifestation of that so how do we apply that in our understanding of feminism today as Muslim women who are increasingly dominated by these false narratives about women and it is true that these narratives have an agenda, but I think it's a stretch to say that these narratives are really engineered. Like, I don't think they are. I think a lot of things get made up on the spot. So something will happen and there's a response and then that becomes the way to respond to something. So, you know, there's a lot of um, sexual assault. So somebody sends out a tweet and says me too and then suddenly we have a me too movement um, which goes around the world that's not engineered that's something that happens spontaneously and now all of a sudden everything that goes on is now viewed through this um, this concept of me too okay so there's an agenda there but it's not it's not always as calculated um, as you might think sometimes or the things that we need to read and cleanse ourselves and detox ourselves from are these false ways of interpreting 
and uh, the distorted thinking that comes from a lot of these uh, feminist ways of looking at the world, we need to get rid of them from our hearts and our minds. And the way to do that is to be very careful about what literature you read about women. So don't just go into a bookshop and pick up anything that's got a title with women and Islam in it and you know, rereading the Quran from a women's point of view and things like that because you'll find that a lot of those scholars don't even know any Arabic. Okay, and if you don't know Arabic, you really cannot approach the Quran at all. So be very careful. So start to rid yourself from the thought and practice that your understanding is going to come from these sources. Okay, it won't. And if you don't know what the framework is, and if you really don't know how to engage with it properly, then don't read it. Okay, just go and do something to adorn yourself with proper knowledge which is the next part, which is to go and learn your deen. Learn your basic aqidah and fiqh and tafsir and hadith and adorn yourself with real knowledge that benefits you, knowledge that you can act on, that will beautify you and grace your everyday life and assist you in your journey back to Allah because isn't that what we're doing here? Isn't that what we're made for? Aren't we going back to Allah? So let's not get waylaid with this nonsense stuff on the side that will only bring us down and spoil that for us. Work on making the seeking of knowledge the foundation of your life and manifest that, the third part, the tajali aspect, which is by acting on it. And make that your priority. And it is said in a, in a hadith, weak hadith, but still the meaning is, is correct, that attending one class or gathering of sacred knowledge is better than praying a thousand rakahs visiting a thousand sick people and attending a thousand funerals. The biggest thing you can do if you want to empower yourself, okay, and this is really the best and most sincere advice that I could give anybody, is learn Arabic, okay, and really make a commitment to do that, regardless of what stage you are in your life, okay, whether you're at school, university, whether you've just gotten married, you've got small children, you're a grandmother, whatever, it doesn't matter, make a really sincere intention and start acting on learning Arabic because that is where your real empowerment as a Muslim woman will come from. Okay, it's not going to come from these uh, weird uh, alien types of interpretations of the Quran. That won't help you, that won't empower you. Okay, it will weaken you and like the one feminist said, you can't be Muslim and feminist. Well, okay, well I want to be Muslim so let me get rid of all that feminist stuff then. Really, the best thing you can do is learn Arabic, and I can't overstate that ever. It is the most empowering learning process and development process and expansion of your knowledge and who you are as a human being. So I really, really strongly advise that. Okay, so the second point about how do we renew our understanding is knowing that your femininity and that your real and your potential you know, what do we call sexual energy, sexual being, sexual expression, that it's a responsibility that you have been entrusted with. And so we learn from this story of Sayyidah Zuleikha and Sayyidina Yusuf what can happen when a person doesn't honor that trust in the way that it should be honored. And that's okay for that to have happened the way that it did because it's there to teach us something. So we need to look at her and how she was with that to see how we should be and how we should um, respond to that within ourselves. So, of course, every woman has 
this potential and this reality of this aspect of themselves. And the story shows us what can happen when it is submitted to outside of the boundaries of its proper place. And the definition of hikmah, of wisdom, is putting things in their right place. So a wise woman is a woman who knows the proper place for this aspect of herself and how to use it. And it's not to be put out there on display. It's not to be used in a way that is just there to get some type of validation for yourself by other people looking at you in a sexual way and thinking, oh, you look pretty, oh, you look sexy, oh, you look um, in a way that is pleasing to my eye and uh, placating my desire. That's not wise, okay? Because if we go out there and use this part of ourselves to attract that type of negative attention, then what we're doing is we're only um, going out there and engaging with men who are not halal for us and we're not halal for them. So the wise woman who puts this aspect of herself in its proper place does it in a halal way. And if she's not married, then she doesn't do it at all. And if she is married, then she does it within the bounds of marriage, which is a sacred contract that you have between you and your husband. And this is a, a sacred a contract that you have with Allah because it's also it's a religious contract as well and there's rights involved and he has to give you your rights and you have to give him his. And one of the mutual rights and one of the goals of marriage is that you have a sexual relationship within the bounds of that marriage and not outside of it. So a wise woman is a woman who knows that a wise woman and a woman on the straight path is one who doesn't degrade um, her sexual aspect and uh, she's a woman who protects it okay and we know that the worst type of violation of a woman is sexual assault because this is an experience that violates her sacredness that violates the deepest part of her whole being and so we need to kind of really move away from this concept that by seeking external approval or validation for ourselves in a sexualized way is somehow an elevation of ourself and an affirmation that even if we're in a hijab, okay, that somehow we're accepted and we're okay. Um, and that's just not the case. So very, very quickly, because I understand that time has gone on quite a bit now, um, just two very, very short experiences that I had. Just after I became Muslim, I came um, into contact with a, a young family from Saudi Arabia. Um, this is in Melbourne, Australia. And I got uh, friendly with them. The husband was um, in Melbourne doing his master's degree. And his wife, of course, couldn't speak any English at first. And after a few months, uh, she began to know a few words. And I, I went to visit her and she kind of said in a few words and motioned with her hands. She says, the women outside, okay, she come from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, right? This is more than 20 years ago. And she said, the women outside, she says they dress like this. So she sort of showed the big hair and the makeup and the tight clothes and the little skirt. And she says to me, what do they wear at home? I can't even imagine what she was thinking because if that's how someone dresses to go out, then how on earth do you dress at home? And so I said to her, oh, at home there's no, no nice hair, no makeup, no nice clothes, um, you know, just a old uh, t-shirt, um, perhaps uh, uh, sports pants, something like this, and like, no beautiful, no, no beautiful. <laughs> and she was shocked. 
And she's like, but how, how can you go out like that and at home for your husband not prepare yourself? And she just could not get this concept in her head because, of course, in the Arab culture, um, you dress at home for your husband and you show all your beauty and everything at home. And, of course, when you go out, the way for not just Arab culture, but, of course, for all Muslim people is for Muslim women to be covered so that you don't show any of that to other people who are not halal for you so that they don't encroach upon that space which is not theirs to encroach upon because you're not in a sacred contract with them through the act of marriage. Um, and the second one, I had a neighbor in Jordan uh, when we stayed there. Himahullah, she actually just passed away a couple of months ago from COVID, I heard just recently. May Allah have mercy on her. And she was my neighbor and I used to visit her during the day and things like that. And there was one evening, it was about nine o'clock, and for some reason I needed to speak to her about something. I can't remember what it was for. So I ran upstairs, I knocked on her door and she opened the door and she was dressed beautifully. I'm like, mashallah, you're going out. I'm thinking she's going to a wedding or something. She had her hair done and makeup and perfume and all her gold on and a really nice dress. And she kind of laughed and she goes, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere. And so she ended up explaining to me that this is what she does every evening. So after Isha, she prays and she gets ready, okay? And she dresses herself up like that. And her husband used to come home late. So then he would come home, he would see her like that. And then if he wanted her, then she was ready. And if he didn't, for whatever reason, then she would go and take off her makeup and get in her prayer clothes and spend a couple of hours in worship. So this is how she was wise about her beauty, her femininity, and her sexual aspect of herself, and she put it exactly in the right place. So these are two examples that I think show us a proper place, how to use this part of ourselves, and also illustrate to us that there's no benefit in being uh, sidelined or being deluded by any other discourse or narrative out there that would take us away from the straight path and away from using our mental, physical and spiritual gifts and taking the responsibility for them for the purposes that they were intended for, inshallah. So we'll finish there. We're on uh, Facebook, Miss Women Halakha, private group, Instagram at Miss Women and Telegram. So that's a private group. You can contact for that as well. Inshallah. So we ask Allah to make us women on the straight path with wisdom and to be guided well and to not be beguiled by uh, the uh, falsehood masquerading as the truth that seeks only to derail us and take us in ways that are not befitting for our rank as honourable Muslim women and honourable human beings. So we ask Allah for protection and a proper and clear understanding of how to interpret and how to be in this world, inshallah. Wassallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.